my uh, word of welcome to all those who are visiting with us uh, this morning and joining us as we uh, worship Christ our Savior and as we sing of our Redeemer. Uh, we can't think of any place we would rather you be than here with us. Uh, I'm Pastor Thabiti, one of the five pastors of Anacostia River Church. And on behalf of all of the pastors, behalf of the entire church family, uh, let me welcome you again to uh, this church service. I point out a couple things that might be helpful for you. Number one, if you need a Bible, all you need to do is raise your hands. There's some gentlemen in the aisles here with copies of the Bible. Just raise your hands and we'd be happy to give you one. Um, and if you need a Bible, not just for this morning service, but you need a Bible at home, uh, you need a Bible to read on your own time, take that Bible as our gift to you. We would love for you to have God's Word and to read God's Word and to get to know God through His Word. Uh, there's a brother here with his hand up. Um, Vernon, just to the right here. Um, I think they're set. Anybody else need a Bible? Just raise your hand. Also, uh, if you come this morning and you're visiting, uh, we really want to get to know you. We, we want to spend a little time with you. We, we treasure this time we have kind of singing God's praises together, but we hope you'll stick around after the service. There's some coffee and cookies, and if you can beat the kids back there, you can get some. Um, stick around and have a little coffee, have some cookies with us. Let us get to shake your hand, get to know you face to face. And then there are ways that we, we want to get to know you in prayer. Uh, so there's a welcome card. We hope you got one. Uh, take that welcome card, complete it for us. On the back is a place for prayer requests. Let us know how we can pray for you this week. The staff uh, would love to do that and ask the Lord to bless you uh, in this week ahead. So if you're visiting with us, welcome again. Well, we continue in a series of um, sermons that we began last week, which we've called Remember Our Calling. Remember Our Calling. Um, the sermon series kind of has this burden, if you will. Uh, we've been meeting as a church family and serving the Lord as a church family for almost a year and a half. Yeah, praise the Lord. You know, a year and a half, this church didn't exist a year and a half ago. But God in his graciousness and his kindness has called us together as a family from many different walks of life, from different parts of the city, even different parts of the country and the world. Uh, increasingly, this is a, a congregation, a family that is, by God's grace, growing and diversifying. Um, some of you are here from day one, and some have come, this is your first day. Um, and I thought it would be good for us to just sort of step back in the stream of things and remember from the scriptures why God has called us together to be a church. To remember why we exist, to think again about the purposes that the Lord has given us as a congregation. Now, now one of the things I noticed in my own heart, and, and you can tell me it later if you like, if, if you've noticed this in, in your life as well, is we got started over a year ago last April on Easter Sunday, and with all the joy of the resurrection and all the joy of the gospel, uh, we, we sort of hit the ground running, lots of zeal and, and lots of service. And service has continued, but in my own soul, I, I have noticed coming out of the summer and uh, into the new year with the move to a new place here at the high school, uh, I've noticed a kind of settling into routine, right? Something that I feared, actually. I remember when we first moved to Southeast and, and got our place and we were figuring out where things were. We figured out where the giant grocery store was. You know, brother had to start with the grocery store, right? So we figured out where the grocery store was and we go to the grocery store and and um, two things struck us right away in the grocery store. One was 
we weren't going to get out of there quick. The line was slow. <laughs> the line was slow. But we did a little people watching while we were standing there. And we noticed people that looked like my brother Pat, looked like my sister Didi, looked like my wife's family. And we felt really comfortable. And I turned to my wife and I said, um, this is wonderful. This is home. But the danger to us is it's going to get too comfortable too quickly. And what I meant by that was in, in all of the comfort and the ease that, that God has graciously been giving us as a family, it would be really easy for us to forget our mission, to get into a routine where we go to work and we come home and we do homework and we do it all again tomorrow. And, and this, this tremendous thing that God has called us to do somehow begins to sort of fade from our focus. And so the burden of this series is uh, we not let our zeal grow cold that we keep our spiritual fervor, that we go back to those things that are kind of foundational for us as a church, and we think foundational really for any church insofar as they come up out of the Bible, and, and we be quickened again, and we commit ourselves afresh in practical ways to the things that the Lord has called us to. So last week, uh, we thought about what we call uh, our five M's, and we thought about that first M, the message of the gospel that we be committed to both enjoying the goodness of the gospel for our own soul's sake, but also exporting that good news to those who don't yet know. Well, the second of our five M's is, is mercy, that we be committed um, to both living in the mercy of God, but committed also to showing mercy to our neighbors, to showing mercy to our neighbors. And that's what we're going to consider this morning. And before we do, I want to say one other thing by way of introduction, one other thing by way of preface. preface. What we're about to talk about this morning, I don't feel particularly good at. I'm not preaching this to you out of the authority of my own example. As I hope we will see, this comes to us and comes to us all from the authority of God's Word. Now, here's an area where your pastor needs to grow. Now, I'm an introvert by nature. That surprises some of you, but it's true. I'm an introvert by nature. And I think the whole world was really meant to be run by introverts, right? It was, and all you loud extroverts start mixing things up. But I'm an introvert by nature, and there's no sin in that. But my introversion can express itself in sinful ways, in a selfish retreat from people when I should open up and serve people. In a, in a selfish holding on to my own routine and my own time. In a selfish shutting people out of my heart and, and my life. So here's a place where I need to grow in many ways and in some ways that feel contrary to my nature. All right? So I just want to say that up front. Because as we get into this, there may be places where you start to feel the, the, your own sense of conviction or you start to feel the Lord calling you to some things and you might be tempted to despondency, and you might be tempted to a kind of guilt that's illegitimate, I want you to go back, as I have to, to the, to the resources of the gospel, to the grace of God, and recognizing that none of us are there yet, and we won't be there till we get there. And there, beloved, is glory. All right? So with that in mind, we want to come to this topic of showing mercy. As we did last time, we're going to survey the book of Titus, and I want to raise up for us four points here uh, for us to consider. So if you're taking notes, this is the outline for the talk here. Number one, showing mercy is a gospel necessity. It's a gospel 
necessity. Number two, showing mercy is a discipleship necessity. It's a discipleship necessity. Number three, showing mercy, this calling we have in the community to be people who show mercy. Number three is a practical, or excuse me, a ministry necessity. Ministry necessity. And number four, it is a practical necessity. So gospel necessity, discipleship necessity, ministry necessity, practical necessity. And we're just going to walk through Titus and sort of cherry pick some verses in context. And, and we're going to just sort of see how Titus focuses, focuses us on this idea of good works. And good works and mercy, I'm using as synonyms here. And we're going to see that thread run through this book in these four different ways. So let's start with the first one, showing mercy is a gospel necessity. We see that in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. Look there with me. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness and notice, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now, we looked at this verse, these verses in more detail last week, and you see there in verses 11 to 13, this kind of summary statement of, of the gospel, of the message, of the good news of Jesus Christ. Verse 11 tells us about this salvation, that the grace of God has appeared and it brings salvation to all men, to all men who believe. In other words, that the kindness of God has come into the world in the appearance of his son and through his son, Jesus Christ, who is, who is his perfect righteousness and is his sin bearer, his sacrifice upon the cross, God saves men through Jesus. So verse 11 is about salvation, but verse 12 is about sanctification. That same grace that's come into the world that saves men from the judgment of God to come, that same grace, that same kindness teaches men now to live sober and upright lives in this present wicked age. It teaches men to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and basically to say yes to God. That's an act of God's kindness and God's grace. And so verse 12 is about this sanctification, about this learning to grow in holiness by saying no to the wrong things and yes to the right things. But then notice how verse 13 moves us forward in time and history to glorification. We're waiting for what Paul calls here the blessed hope, our happy hope, the appearing of the glory of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. When Jesus appears in his glory, we will see him in his glory. And the Bible says that as we see him in his glory, we will be transformed into that very glory. This is what John writes in 1 John 3, 2 and 3. This is the good news, beloved. God came into the world to save sinners to teach them to live for him and to bring them to this appointed day when they will see and share in his glory. But notice now verse 14, we move from salvation to sanctification to glorification to verse 14, vocation. God has left us something to be and do. You see there, he's given Christ to redeem us from all lawlessness 
In other words, Christ has bought us back. He's rescued us from lawlessness, another way of talking about a life of sin. And notice to not only rescue us from that life of sin, but to purify us, to make us holy, to make us clean, to make us a people for his own possession. God has wanted a people for himself who would belong to him and to whom he would belong. That's what the gospel is about. It's about producing a people. It's about gathering people from every tribe and every nation and every language, from from every age and every gender and every ethnic group. It's about gathering together people who were no people and making them a brand new people who belong to God. And then verse 14 tells us what that people will be like, what they will do. Not only will they be free from lawlessness and not only will they be cleansed, but notice they will be zealous for good works. They will be on fire for doing good because God has called them to that. That's our vocation. That's a, that's a, this is why I said it's a gospel necessity. The outcome of the gospel, there are many goals of the gospel. Ultimate goal is God's own glory. But there are some other sort of sub-goals, if you will. And one of them is right here in verse 14. God has purposed through the gospel in making for, for himself a people that he would not only have that people, but that that people would be the kind of people who are zealous, who are fervent, who are red hot, who are fired up for doing good works. That's why we've been called into existence, church. That's why we've been called to Christ, is that we might also be his people doing good in the world. We see this all through the Bible, really. Famous passages like Micah chapter 6, verse 8. You remember that, right? The prophet says there, he has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Or we come to other famous words in the New Testament from the Lord Jesus himself. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. Remember what the Savior says there? Let your, what, light shine before others so that they may see what? Your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You see that the Lord Jesus joins together the ultimate goal of the gospel and of of God creating the people to give glory to God in heaven with this sort of penultimate goal, with this sort of lesser but important goal of doing good works before the world, that, that those good works become the means by which others give glory to our God, right? So if we are gospel people, we are good work people. The gospel propels us as a new community, to live lives of mercy. But now we need to be careful. We need to be careful here. God saves us to do good works, but good works do not save us. Good works do not save us. Let's see that in the text. Look at Titus chapter 3, verses 4 to 8. Again, we looked at these verses last week. We just want to look at them again and pull out a couple of things here. Verse 4, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. 
the saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to what? Good works. You see the order there. You see how this goes. Verse 4, God saved us. We did the sinning. God did the saving. God saved us. Notice there in verse 5, not because of works that we have done, not because of our righteousness, not, not because of any good thing that we have done in the world. So, beloved, if you're new here to Christianity, you've, you've not thought much about Christianity, you've not thought much about what it means to be a Christian, this is, this is absolutely vital. You must understand this. You will not do anything good enough or enough good things to earn God's approval of you. You will not do enough things to earn God's forgiveness. You will not do enough things to earn your way into heaven. By our good deeds, by our good works, no man, the Bible says, is justified before God. That's not how it works. In almost every other world religion, that's what they teach. That there is a a path to God. There's a way to God. There are acts that bring you to God. Christianity stands alone and against all of that as the one religious faith and the one true faith which teaches us that, no, actually, we don't earn our way to God. God comes to us in Christ his Son. He rescues us. That's what it means when we say he saves us. It means he he rescues us from judgment and, and sin and hell. A judgment and a hell that we really deserve precisely because none of us are perfect in the doing of good works. If you're here this morning and you can admit about yourself that you're not perfect, let me tell you what the theological consequence of that admission is. When we admit, as we should, that we're not perfect, we should also understand that means we deserve hell. We deserve God's judgment. Because the standard of being with God and in God's presence and accepted by God. His standard is perfection. It is a perfect holiness, a perfect obedience, a perfect righteousness. And none of us can achieve it. It's why we need Jesus. It's why we praise Jesus. It's why we trust Jesus. Because he was perfect. He obeyed God perfectly. He was nothing but righteous. And he suffered in our place to pay the penalty of our sins, to close the door to hell for those who believe in him, and to open the door of heaven for all who would trust in him as their God and Savior. So if you're here this morning, beloved, and you've not yet trust Jesus, trusted Jesus, oh, we, we, we beg with you to. We, we plead with you to to confess your sin, to acknowledge what you came here knowing, that you're not perfect, but to see the consequence of that, that God will, as a holy God, judge you for your sins. And there is no escape except through Jesus, who was crucified for our sins to pay the debt, who was raised from the grave three days later for our justification, and who lives at the right hand of God the Father, praying for us, interceding for us, keeping us, all those who trust in him. 
So the gospel comes into the world and it creates a people. That people is zealous for good works. But the gospel nowhere teaches us that our good works save us. You see it again there in, in verse, in verse um, 4 of chapter 3. The goodness and kindness of God our Savior appeared. Verse 5, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. It wasn't up to us, but according to his own mercy. And you jump down to verse 8, saying it's trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. You see the order? Those who believe in God and are saved by that faith. Okay, then from that faith and from that salvation, they devote themselves to good works. It's the difference of working from salvation and working for salvation. As Christians, we work from it. We have it by faith in Christ, and we live it out by his grace and his mercy. Paul puts it another way in his letter to the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. Many of you will know these words, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So even the faith we have is a gift of God. Then he says in verse 9, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. We won't go to heaven bragging before God that we were so good he had to let us in. That's a delusion, beloved. No, we will only boast in his grace. We will boast in his sacrifice. We will boast in his love. We will boast in Christ. God has saved us in such a way that he has closed the door to any bragging on ourselves and called us then to boast only in him. His cross is our glory. And notice in verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, this is amazing, beloved. Not only does the gospel create a people who are zealous for good works, but God, even before time began, was deciding how he was going to use us in those good works. And we don't do these things alone. We do these things with his, his preordination. We do these things with his, with his sovereign planning. We do these things in accord with his purpose, designed uniquely for us. Eli, God has prepared works for you to walk in before the world began. Mubuso. Before the world began, God knew you and that he would save you and that he would chart works for you to walk in. Colin, Erica, his husband and wife, God has purpose that you not only be his and be each other's, but that you would walk together in works that he prepared beforehand. And Stephanie, God has made you full of good works. He called you to walk in them, prepare them before the worlds began. Karen? He's known you by name. He's appointed you to life. He's appointed for you to walk in good works, which he prepared with his own hands. Jading, that's true of you. God prepared works for you to walk in. All of us who are his, he has charted the course of our lives, that we should walk in good works, which he himself has prepared. You know what this means, beloved? There is not a Christian alive who does not have a purpose. Not one. And we may state it as broadly as to do good works. And we will discover in the course of our lives the specificity of it. 
how it is he wants us to carry out those good works, what it is he has planned for us. In his providence and his wisdom, he will order our steps in his word, and he will order our steps in the church, and we will do Peter, and we will do Deborah, and we will do Christy, and we will do Aphia. We will do what God has purposed for us to do, Joanna, for his glory and for our joy. So let's keep that order. Let's keep the proper order. God has saved us in part to do good works, but good works do not save us. We've had different ways throughout church history of saying this in the Reformation of the 1500s and the 1600s. The Reformers put it this way, we are saved by faith alone, but not by faith that is alone. Or to go back even further to the Bible itself, to James chapter 2. Remember how James puts it, faith without works is dead. Let me read those three verses for you. You can write this down and look at it later if you like. James chapter 2, verses 14 to 17. James writes there, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith, faith without works, save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And beloved, we don't want to make the error that James is putting his finger on here. To be a people who talk about faith, who express faith propositionally, which is right and true and necessary, but who don't express that faith in a living, practical way. We don't want to be those who see our neighbors hungry or see our neighbors naked and don't feed them and clothe them. James says, what good is that? To leave the man in the cold without clothing. To leave the man with bare cupboards without food. No, the kind of faith that really is anchored to Christ is the kind of faith that also meets the needs around it. It shows itself in mercy. It's a gospel necessity. There are no gospel people who are not also good work people. Good works is a gospel necessity. But secondly, good works or showing mercy is a discipleship necessity. That just really follows from our first point, doesn't it? But I want us to see it in Titus in the various ways in which Titus gives expression to it and a couple of other places in the scripture. This faith that we have which saves us must express itself in our discipleship, in our following of the Lord Jesus Christ. So to start in another letter of Paul's, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 to 10. There Paul says, all women should be clothed with good works. Uh, Hear hear now how he addresses that. He says, women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness. And he explains, with good works works. Now, there's many a Christian who stumbled over those verses and got into all kinds of things. How long should a woman's skirt be? And can a woman wear jewelry? And should they? That's really not Paul's point. Those are important things to talk about because he's calling us to modesty and self-control and things of that sort. But he's not calling us to a peevishness and to be walking around with tape measures to measure the length of a hymn. No, it seems to me that his major point is women who profess godliness 
are most appropriately adorned by modesty and by good works, by an internal character that conforms to godliness, and by an external life that conforms to godliness. All the women of the church are to be so dressed, right? Or you come over to, back to Titus chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, where, Titus, where Paul, writing to Titus, begins to teach Titus on how he should disciple people in the church. And, and there he begins to talk about older women and younger women. So look there in Titus 2, 3 and 4. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, a kind of virtue and the things that grow out of that virtue. Verse 4, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. And we're going to think about this section of Scripture more next week, verses 1 to 10. But I just want us to notice right here what, what God intends. And not only are the sisters of the church to be marked by being dressed in good works, but there's a way in which that happens. The older women are to teach the younger women. That, that you have a vital role as an older lady in this congregation in helping to disciple the younger women in this congregation. And part of what you are to be possessed of as an older woman is this virtue of this, this good. And that's part of what you train the younger sisters in, in doing good, which notice where it's expressed. In whom? In character. In the raising of children and the loving of husbands and, and all of that so that the word of God is not reviled, right? Put this another way. The good works that we do as a congregation, well, the best of the good works begin at home, begin in our personal discipleship with the Lord and how we walk that out in our biological families and how we walk that out in church families. And, and, and notice I've been just sort of pulling up the examples of ladies here. It's not, beloved, to put sisters under a microscope or to set up a double standard. All that's said here of women is true of men, too. Men should actually be leading in this, modeling this, shepherding in this. It, it applies to the entire congregation. So look at Titus 3, verse 1. Paul tells Titus, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Those are kinds of good works. Your obedience to your government officials is a good work, commanded by God here. To be obedient, notice, to be ready for every good work. That's our charge as a congregation, to be ready for every good work. Let me ask you a question. On a scale of one, ten, one to ten, how ready are we? Individually and corporately. There's no right or wrong answer, it's your personal opinion. How ready are we? For every good work. I mean, are we in the starting blocks like an Olympic sprinter, waiting for the gun to sound so that we can lunge into the good work? Or are we still out of the blocks, kind of shaking our legs and doing that little thing they do to get loose and to, and to get ready, you know? Here the text is saying, be ready so you don't have to get ready. Right? So that when the gun goes off, when the opportunity is revealed, we can dive into the works that God has prepared for us to do. So it's a, something that belongs to the entirety of the congregation. And, 
And notice the, the specific things, some of the specific things that God has in mind when he calls us to be ready for every good work. So let your eye go down to chapter 3, verse 14. There we find the term again where Paul says, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. In other words, the devotion to good works, the readiness to do good works, God designs to do two things, to help people, to help others who are in some urgent need. This is how we meet crisis. This is, this is how we provide relief when people are, are really hurting, is we're in this posture to sort of do what's good when we have the opportunity. But notice also, so that we may not be unfruitful. It's also part of how God designs to bear fruit in our lives, to, to produce these good works in us, to call us to these good works in order that we might flower as Christian disciples, that we might grow in conformity to Christ that we might bear the virtue and the qualities that he calls us to. So these good works are not only for the good of others, but they wind up being for our good too, don't they? You've heard this before. You, in sayings like this, it's more blessed to give than to receive. What's being expressed there? Well, there was a, a blessing in the soul of the giver as, as they met the need of another that, that in some ways surpasses even the meeting of the need of others. God seems to have wired good works this way, that when we do them, others are blessed, but so too are we. So too is our own soul, right? Stellar examples of this in the Scripture. You remember Dorcas, or was it Tabitha or Talitha? Acts chapter 9, verses 36 to about 41. Peter is called to basically a, a funeral. The sister named Dorcas has died, and, and when he gets there, the widows are all weeping. Why? Well, verse 36, I believe it is, says, she was full of good works and charity. And then around in verse 39, as the widows are weeping and Peter's trying to talk to them, they're holding up all these tunics, all these cloaks and coats and things that Dorcas has made for people who are in need. Ah, now that is a Wonderful picture of godly maturity in an older sister. One who, as in the case of Proverbs 31, whose hand supplies the needs of her own household, but, but also the needs of others beyond her household. And, and we want to be so many male and female Dorcases, ready for every good work, devoted to doing every good work, who are wept over, when the Lord calls us home because of the echo of those good works, because of the way God has been pleased to use us to touch lives. So showing mercy is a discipleship necessity. Number three, showing mercy is a ministry necessity. It's a ministry necessity because a life of good works flows out of the gospel and because all Christians must be devoted to living this way, then teaching, modeling, and leading in the, in the doing of these good works becomes sort of at the heart of pastoral ministry. That's what I mean by it's a ministry necessity. In other words, part of the pastor's job description is instructing the church in this very area of works of mercy, of doing good. 
Well, you see the job description sort of teased out in Titus here. We get two points here about the pastor's character related to this issue of mercy, and we get four points here in terms of the pastor's activity in terms of the ministry of mercy. So notice, first of all, in Titus chapter 1, verse 8, there in the list of qualifications, which Jeremy will preach about in a couple of weeks, there we see, Titus 1, 8, that a pastor must be a lover of good, a lover of good, that, that he's someone who is possessed of virtue. He loves all the things that are, that are right, and he, and he seeks to, to sort of live out those things that are right. Never appoint a bad man to be a pastor. Seriously. You see a man, you visit a church, the Lord may move you from here at some point, or maybe you're visiting with us and you're looking for a church home, and you go to a church and you're able to observe that the pastor or the leaders are not lovers of what is good, don't join that church. Don't join that church. It will not only spoil their souls, but in time, it will spoil the church. It will spoil the lives of others. So a pastor must be one who is possessed of virtue. But, but notice, secondly, pastors must be models of good works. So look at chapter 2, verse 7. In, in verses 1 to 10, Titus has been getting some instruction on how to disciple the, the various segments of the congregation, older men, younger men, older women, younger women. Here in verse 7, Paul speaks to Titus himself. He says to Titus, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. You heard the saying, some things are better caught than taught, right? The doing of good works is in part caught. It's to be modeled. This is why I feel such a, a heavy sense of conviction in my own life in terms of thinking through. So, I mean, how are you modeling this for the congregation? You know, he says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And, and that's, a, that's a challenge to the pastor to sort of think through, okay, if, if people are following my life as an example of what it's like to follow Christ, what are they seeing? How generous are you? How quick are you to, to enter into serving others? In what ways are you failing to set a model? How must you repent of that? This is part of our job description, all of us as elders, to show ourselves to be models of good works. But then now, this is at the heart of the ministry, too, in terms of our, our teaching and our activities. So chapter 3, verse 1, again, pastors must remind the church of this calling, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Remind them. Put them in remembrance. Tell them what they already know. Right? We already know that we're called to be committed to good works. And, and part of pastoral ministry, a large part of pastoral ministry, maybe even the bulk of pastoral ministry and counseling and preaching, is in that little word, reminding. It isn't so much that we teach you all these tremendous new things as it, as it is telling you what you already know from the Word of God. So we had to put you in remembrance of these things. But notice verse 8 again. Pastors must not only remind the church of its calling, but notice we must require the church to do these things. Chapter 3, verse 8. The saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. So we go from just a sort of reminder, which may feel passive and may feel like an option, to a stronger posture as a, as a pastor. Now it's, it's insisting on these things, that we remember the gospel and live out the gospel, particularly as it relates to the proclamation of, of Christ and his good news and the demonstration of the Father's mercy in caring for others. Insist on it. 
Notice number three, what pastors must do. They must, they must teach how to do this. Verse 14 of chapter 3. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. This is not something that we get by osmosis. We, we have to learn this, right? And why must we learn this? Well, because the world is not so generous. And all of us, if we're saved, we're saved out of the world. And we're saved out of the sort of thinking of the world. And we have to have, Romans 12, our minds renewed, right? Well, what does the world teach us? Now, I got mine, you get yours, right? And, and I'm going to get mine sometimes at your expense, right? And the world is hyper-concerned about people not getting over on them, not taking advantage of them. The world has a motto, make all you can, can all you get, then sit on your can, right? That's the world. That's the pattern of thinking for unredeemed humanity. Wherever you go, then Christ saves you. And he saves you simply by his mercy. And you discover the lavishness of his grace. And he says things to us as he did in the call to worship. Be merciful as your father in heaven is merciful. And he calls us to be generous just as he has been generous to us. And remembering his generosity to us begins to sort of change our values and to change our orientation. We're not fussing like we used to when the neighbor wants to borrow sugar again. No, next time we're at the grocery store, we buy two bags of sugar. It's just this generosity begins to well up and to, to overflow. And we have to be taught that. We have to be instructed in that, that we might learn to do that more and more and be ready for every good work. I know my heart needs that instruction. And I think there's grace in verse 14 when it says that they may learn. Or back over in 1 Timothy chapter 4, when Paul's addressing pastors over there, and he says to the past, says to Timothy there around verse 15 or 16, let your progress be evident to all. I love that word progress. It means the pastor doesn't have to be all the way there yet either. Let the people see you grow. Let the people see you struggle. Let the people see you overcome. And teach the people the same. Instruct them. There's grace in this. We are meant to learn as disciples of Christ how to live this way, beloved, because none of us come prepackaged with this software to be ready to do every good work. So we must teach this. But notice the last thing that pastors must do. We must pray that our people live this way. We see that we got to go to another passage of Scripture. Turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 10 to 11. If you're new to the Bible, 2 Thessalonians, turn back to your left about five or six pages. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 10 to 11. This is what we find the Apostle Paul writing to that church in terms of his prayer life for them. He says, beginning in verse 10, well, let me start in verse 9. He makes reference to those who don't yet believe the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. That's the bad news. Verse 10, when he comes on that day to be glorified in all his saints. That's the good news for those of us who believe Christ will be glorified in us on the day that he comes. And, and we will marvel among all, all of us who believe, we will marvel at him. Because our testimony to you is believed. Verse 11. To this end we always pray for you. That our God may make you worthy of his calling. And may fulfill every resolve for good. And every work of faith 
by his power. You see what Paul is saying there? That he and his apostolic team, when they thought about the Thessalonican church, they prayed for them. And they prayed that God's calling on their lives would be, would be fulfilled, that God's calling on their lives would, would have integrity by the way that they live. And they prayed for them that every resolve for good would be accomplished. Y'all pray for me that my every resolve would be accomplished. Because here's the thing I notice about myself. I resolve to do good, and it's not always followed by the action of doing good. Anybody else like that? Resolve and resolve and resolve. And it's not that your resolve is not genuine, right? That, that's, a, that's a false guilt sometimes. It's that we're human. It's that we're weak. It's that we need the power of God for our resolves to come to pass. If we're going to do God's work, we have to do it God's way. And that means depending upon God's power. And so let us pray for each other that we would finish what we start out to do in the doing of good works. So let me bring us then to our last point. So showing mercy is gospel necessity. It is a discipleship necessity. It is a ministry necessity. And it is finally a practical necessity. And here's where I want to sort of get down to, well, how do, we, how do we walk this out? If we're convinced that God creates for himself a people who are zealous for good works through the gospel, and we are convinced then that the mark of discipleship in part is that love which expresses itself in showing mercy and kindness and goodness to its neighbor. And we're convinced then that what we need as a church is to give appropriate attention to praying for and teaching and modeling these things uh, through our ministry. The question is, well, how do we put, how do we put our feet on the ground? How do, we, how do we live this out? And if you're like me, you're a beginner. So I want to give us two sort of beginning applications. First application is this. Be a neighbor. Be a neighbor. You know that when we started this church, we talked a lot. When we talked about mercy, uh, the paradigm for us in that, the illustration for us in that was Luke chapter 10, 25 and 37 the parable of the Good Samaritan. You remember how Jesus told the story of, of two religious folks who were headed down to Jerusalem on the Jericho Road and, and they saw a man beaten and left for dead and robbed and how the religious folks crossed the street on the other side and couldn't be bothered. But there was this man who came down the road, a Samaritan. He was an ethnic other. He was a despised other. Uh, he wasn't really to have anything to do with Jewish persons, but this Samaritan, who was supposed to have been the bad guy in the story, is the hero in the story. He comes down the street, he sees the man beaten, left for dead. The Bible says he had compassion on the man, and so he goes over to the man, and he tends to the man's wounds, puts him on his donkey, takes him to an inn, cares for him overnight, then leaves the innkeeper money to sort of supply all of his needs while he's away, and he says, when I come back, if there's any more he owes you, I'll take care of it. That's mercy, beloved. That's ready to do every good work. And the punchline of that parable was Jesus asked the man, now which of these three was his neighbor? Well, it wasn't the first two. It was the Samaritan. It was the Samaritan because he served his needs. So how do we go about being neighbors? Well, one thing to do is just to introduce ourselves to our neighbors. Go say hi. My name is <laughs> fill in the blank. It's convicted the elders right now are reading a book called The Art of Neighboring. 
thinking about this issue a little bit. And they have a challenging exercise in this book where they have in the middle a picture of a house. That's your house. And then they've got eight squares around it. And they've got A, B, and C in each square. The eight squares around it are the eight houses nearest to you. Letter A is the names of the people in the house. Do you know the names of all the people in the house? Letter B is, do you know something significant about the persons, you know, in the house? It could be, you know, what they do for work or things of that sort. Letter C is, do you know some deep things about that person that you would only know as a consequence of talking with them as a neighbor? Man, I did that exercise. I closed up the book real quick. (laughs) Now, in fairness, some of the neighbors we knew have moved. But it was a challenge because the eight houses nearest me, I think I could fill in three reasonably well. First step is to get to know our neighbors, to say hi, to introduce ourselves, to break the isolation, to get over the timidity and introduce ourselves. I mean, the worst that's going to happen is we have to suffer through a little awkwardness for a moment, right? So introduce yourselves. But now be a neighbor by borrowing a cup of sugar from your neighbor. Now, that may sound a little opposite of what I said earlier, but, but here's the thing, beloved. Because we're not the saviors, it's good for us to sometimes express our needs, too. So a cup of sugar is just a metaphor for living in some kind of dependence upon your neighbor, right? You know, sometimes we don't have access to people's lives because we, we present to them as if we got everything together. And we don't really need them, right? And, and what do some people learn as a consequence of that? Well, if I'm going to be a good neighbor, I must never need my neighbors, too. That's not the lesson of neighborliness. So one of the best things we can do is to go borrow something. Now, again, long before I thought I would do this sermon and and not to make myself look like a hero, when we first moved into our house, uh, Matt Schmucker, Julian White, and Julian Humphrey, and a couple other brothers came over and were helping us move in. Our our shipping container finally came, and we were setting up furniture, and and Matt came. He had his tools. The other brothers ain't got no tools. Matt Matt had his tools, and he was putting together furniture. And we was like, yo, if we just keep borrowing the same screwdriver, it's going to take us like eight hours, right? And so I went outside and went Looked around, I didn't know anybody, and I, I, there was one brother I noticed who, who grilled pretty regularly in his back house. I'm going to go over here and ask this brother, can I borrow a screwdriver? Knocking on his door, he kind of peeped out a little bit. He's like, what's up, doc? I said, what's up, man? I'm a new neighbor over here at 2420. He says, I, I said, you know, you got a screwdriver I can borrow? He said, a screwdriver? You can tell because you're doing what I would do. Do I have a raggedy screwdriver? You know, I, <laughs> I, I, I don't want to loan my good screwdriver. This is might not come back, right? He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Go away. He comes back. This is how I know it's his raggedy screwdriver. He said, when you're done with it, come back and just put it in the grill for me. See, I never put my good, my good screwdriver in the grill. That, that was the beginning of our relationship with Jason and Chandra. We had them in our home for dinner. They had us in their home for dinner. They, they're one of the, the families that have since moved. And, and yet now our boys continue to play together you know, and, and have a relationship together. It started in God's providence with me needing a screwdriver. So you may be able to go to Frager's and buy a screwdriver, and you may need to do that at some point. But you might want to stop and just say, is this a place for me to show some need for my own neighbor and to ask for something? And we might be surprised at how the ice thaws and the heart opens as we show some need for each other. All right, so borrow a cup of sugar. Number three, Move your grill to the front yard. 
Move your grill in the front yard. We all get sort of trained to grill in the backyard, and some of us have privacy fences. We don't want everybody seeing what meat we got on the grill, and, you know, we don't want nobody begging, right, you know. We think of grilling sometimes as this kind of oasis, right? Well, we're here to do good works, to, to bear love to our neighbor. Move your grill to the front yard. See what happens. See what little kids run by and ask for a soda or something. Right? And see what neighbors just see you grilling and say the obvious. Oh, you're grilling. <laughs> you know? And have you noticed, as, as we've noticed uh, on some blocks near our neighborhood, that actually a lot of people, particularly in the evening when it's cooling off, are out in the front yard with their lawn chairs and mosquito repellent and whatnot. Move your recreational life, at least some of it, to the front yard and see what happens. It kind of says to your neighbor, it's okay for you to see me. And it kind of it opens the door for you to say, yeah, man, I got some burgers on the grill. I see you getting home late. You want to get a burger? Come back over in about 10 minutes. See what happens. Another thing for being a neighbor, let's walk our blocks. Let's walk our blocks. This is one of the things that I've fallen into, of sort of coming home, and I'm, I'm a homebody, I'm an introvert, I like being at home, I like being with my family. I spend way too much time at home. And if I'm not at home, I go outside, I'm pretty quickly to my car. And then I'm in the car and I go wherever I go and I come back, right? Now, it's probably better that on many days, I pay a little bit more money at the corner store than I would if I drove across the bridge to Harris Teeter. Why? Well, support a neighborhood business, meet the store owner, see who I pass when I walk that way regularly, greet them, be a visible part of the community, contribute to the community in that way. A smile, a hi, a stopping at the mailbox. What's going on with you today? It won't happen if my neighborhood is just a place where I shelter and not a place where I live. Right? So walk your block. You exercise. Yeah, sometimes go down to the Anacostia Park. You meet some people there too, right? But sometimes just walk your neighborhood. Right? You, can, you know, the mileage, a mile is a mile wherever you walk it. Right? <laughs> walk it in your neighborhood. Say hi to your neighbor. Walk your dog. Last thing. In terms of being neighbors, let's open our eyes to see. So what's the consequence of me grilling in my backyard, of me jumping in the car and not walking in the neighborhood, of me not saying hi to my neighbor, is I don't, I, I'm robbing myself of opportunity to see need that I can serve. And so as we walk the neighborhood, as we grill in the front yard, as we talk to our neighbors, let's just open our eyes. God, show me what I need to see. Show me what I need to serve. Show me how I can be a neighbor and how I can be neighbored as a consequence. So part one is, let's be neighbors. Part two is, let's develop a plan. Let's develop a plan. So Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. The word consider there has the sense of scheming together. It's, it's let us plot, let's be in cahoots, let's, let's, let's hatch a, a conspiracy to do this two things, love others, and do good work, right? So we're specifically to be as a congregation and in smaller groups, we're specifically to be in this conspiracy of figuring out how to do this, 
As I said before, it didn't come by osmosis, and it didn't come passively, right? Sometimes we can be passive, and something comes up, and we recognize it, and we serve it. But how many of us have had the experience of, of not sort of being intentional and thinking about it, and an opportunity comes, but we don't recognize the opportunity until it's gone? Like, man, you know, if I had been thinking, I could have helped that brother. I could have helped that sister, right? Here, the Bible calls us to be intentional, to be forward thinking. And there are two questions I want to ask you here for you to think about. Write down the answers to this question. What needs and opportunities do I see in my neighborhood? What needs and opportunities do I see in my neighborhood to do good work? And number two, who will I plot with to serve those needs? Who will I plot with to serve those needs? Christianity is not a solo sport. It's a team sport. And this is one of those ways in which we can serve together and lean on each other and do more together than we can do individually. So will that be uh, friends in church? Will that be other Christian neighbors in your neighborhood? Will that be your small group or will you start a block group that in part has that purpose? Or will that be the entire church family? And pray for us as elders as we think about how to shepherd us in this, how to give our attention to the various opportunities in the community. That has been one, of, uh, one part of Jahil Richard's um, job description with us is to be sort of our minister of mercy, thinking through the sort of mercy resources and the mercy needs in the community. And, and you know Jahil. Jahil don't meet a stranger, right? So, so Jahil is just like loving on all the people in the neighborhood and all the organizations. And, and Jahil is zealous in this way. And so he comes back and he says, hey, man, we need to start a mentorship program at Cornerstone. We need to start a, a, a sort of sports fellowship uh, at Anacostia High School. Uh, there's an opportunity with the homeless shelter and do this. And I'm like, pump the brakes, bro, pump the brakes, you know. He's doing exactly what he should do. He's pulling on the leash. He's demonstrating a readiness for every good work. And so pray for us as though we, have, we still have to think strategically about what can we do. We're, we're only a year old. There are only a hundred of us. We, we can't do everything, but we must not do nothing. Right? And so pray for us as we look to lead you and to think through how we're going to be better neighbors in our neighborhood. Well, let me stop. And let me stop with this question. It's a question that comes from that book I mentioned a moment ago, The Art of Neighboring. Uh, near the introduction in there, I was struck by this question, if I can find it. It was this. It's a collection of pastors, about 20 pastors, praying for and thinking together about how they could serve their community. And they'd had the mayor come in, and the mayor had issued them a challenge to basically be neighbors. And they felt some conviction about that because it was like, ain't that what Jesus said? <laughs> Love your neighbor. What if we took that seriously, to love our actual neighbor, right? And then a little bit later, they had another uh, city official come in, and an official was talking about neighboring and, and community, and the city official said this, basically. I'll turn it into a question. Well, I'll, I'll give you her statement. She said, basically, she could not recognize any noticeable difference between the way Christians and non-Christians neighbored. And the question for us is, is there a noticeable difference in how we, Anacostia River Church, Christians, how we neighbor and how our non-Christian neighbors neighbor? If not, it means one of two things. We've got some great non-Christian neighbors, and they are out there, praise God. Or this is an area where we can grow 
in showing the love of Christ tangibly in works of mercy. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you for the gospel. We praise you, Lord, for what Jesus Christ has done for us, us sinners. We praise you that he came into the world in our likeness, in our flesh, to represent us before you. And he lived a perfect life of obedience, O oh Lord, which was a life that we owe you. We, we had not given it to you, we had failed. But Christ came into the world to do what we had not. We praise you for him. And after fulfilling your righteous law, after doing all that you called him to do in order to provide our righteousness, he then took our place and suffered our punishment. On the cross, you poured out your judgment upon Jesus instead of upon us. We praise you. And three days later, to prove to the world that you accepted his sacrifice, that his work was done, the work of saving us, you raised him from the grave in glory and power. We praise you for the resurrection, and we praise you that all who turn from their sins and all who hope in Christ, who trust in him and rely upon him as their God and their Savior, they share in his resurrection. The same power that raised him from the dead is at work in us who believe. And when he comes, we shall see him. And seeing him, we shall be like him. And we will have the hope of our hearts. We thank you for this good news. We ask that you would help us to take this good news to our neighbors. And we ask that you would help us, O oh Lord, to be the people that you have saved us to be. A people, Lord, zealous for good works, who are pure and are freed from lawlessness. Grant that we would do, that we would walk in the work that you prepared for us before the foundation of the world. Lord, grant that we would be such godly neighbors and selfless neighbors that should we even go on vacation, the neighborhood would miss us. Grant that we would be so generous and so kind, so merciful to our neighbors that they might get a glimpse of what you have been like to us. And help us to point them to you with our words as we share the gospel with them. So, Lord, this week, guide us. Help us to know how to live a life of good works. Oh, Lord, fulfill our every resolve. Help us to be devoted to this. And grant, oh, Lord, that everything that hinders the doing of good works would be removed and we would flourish in this calling. We ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.